You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. It didn't always just work one way with who's eating who here. Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl, Drowned World Edition. And here we are talking about the exact opposite of that, actually. Yeah, it's not a drowned world story, and it's not a volcano story. In October 1933, deep in the Western Sahara, in perhaps one of the driest parts of the driest desert in the world, a Hungarian explorer named Laszlo Almashi discovered a shallow cave. The cave depicted people stretched out horizontally, their legs bent as if swimming. It also included images of hippopotamus, giraffe, and other animals that thrive in a green and wet environment, animals that are never seen in the desert. The rock art was dated to be around 10,000 years old, and it pulled back the curtain on a tantalizing time when the Sahara was a wetland paradise, with enormous mega-lakes and vast networks of wild rivers. Back then, there would have been plenty of water to swim in. It was a time when the Sahara was green. A few seasons ago, we produced an episode called Was the Sphinx 10,000 Years Old? In it, we explored the Sphinx water erosion theory, the idea that perhaps the Sphinx was 10,000 years old. According to that theory, the erosion on the Sphinx body came from heavy rainfall that was last seen on the Giza Plateau over 10,000 years ago. According to this theory, there was an advanced civilization that lived on the Sahara during this greener, wetter time. This theory has been debunked. The Sphinx was not built 10,000 years ago. However, it is true that in that time, the Sahara was green, and it was populated by the ancestors of the ancient Egyptians. The Sahara has a fascinating history. It's the largest hot desert in the world, with approximately 3,600,000 square miles of blazing heat. It's only smaller than Antarctica and the Arctic, both of which are also considered deserts but cold ones. The Sahara's geography includes rocky stone plateaus, vast seas of sand with fields of dunes over 590 feet high, great plains of gravel, dried-up beds of ancient lakes and rivers, salt flats, dead volcanoes, and mysterious ruins. 
For the past few hundred thousand years, the Sahara has oscillated between its current desert state and a vast green savanna on a cycle of roughly 20,000 years. The last green Sahara, about 10,000 years ago, wasn't the first one. There have been many green Saharas and many desert Saharas. Sahara, Sahara. I'm going to probably vacillate between the two. Oscillate between the two. <laughs> Much like the Sahara does between green and desert. In fact, there was once a time when the Sahara was even bigger, hotter, and drier than it is today. During the last glacial maximum, around 26,000 years ago, the Sahara Desert extended about 500 miles further south and further north than it does today. And with so much moisture locked up in glaciers, it was even drier than now. While the Sahara today is home to millions of people, almost no trace of human habitation in the Sahara during this drier, hotter time have been found. It was practically uninhabitable. Compared to then, our Sahara today is a fairly hospitable place. So, during the last glacial maximum, as I've said, when ice sheets were much more extensive than they are today, the Sahara was also a lot larger, drier, and hotter than it is today, as I have just described. Its dune fields were expansive, with dunes the size of mountains. Major lakes and rivers we know today, such as Lake Victoria and the White Nile, were either completely dry or unrecognizably low. That all changed around roughly 14,600 years ago. During that time, the African monsoon rains grew stronger, sweeping up from the south to bring rain to the parched land. Scientists debate to this day what caused the shift. But one of the likely possibilities is a shift in the tilt of the Earth's axis, increasing the amount of solar energy the Earth received by about 8%, which had a warming effect throughout the northern hemisphere. Water from the sea evaporated into the atmosphere, and powerful winds brought that moisture to the Sahara, where it fell as rain. The summer monsoon occurs already in Africa, to the south of the Sahara. In this time, it extended much further north, almost all the way to the Mediterranean, and the season lasted longer and brought more rain. As the rain fell, more vegetation grew in the desert, and that increased the humidity even more. These climate change factors multiplied and compounded on themselves until the Sahara was entirely transformed. So what was the green Sahara like? Well, instead of desert, there were wide-open grasslands, verdant woodlands, scrublands, and wetlands. Broad, shallow lakes formed in basins all across the Sahara, as well as rivers that no longer exist today. Researchers have mapped the boundaries of dry, fossilized riverbeds and lakeshores throughout the Sahara. And not only were there lakes and rivers that weren't there today, bodies of water that existed during our time were much larger. One of the most prominent examples was Lake Chad. Lake Chad is currently a large freshwater lake in Central Africa that exists at the border between Chad, Niger, Nigeria, and Cameroon. It's a pretty large lake today. It's about 521 square miles in area. But back in the Green Sahara, this lake was closer to an inland freshwater sea. Researchers today call it Lake Mega Chad, which I just love. <laughs> Me you like anything mega. Mega peen, mega tsunami, mega chad. I don't know. It's really big. <laughs> Lake Mega Chad was 390,000 square miles in area, larger than the Caspian Sea. It was fairly shallow, however, at only about 164 feet deep. There were three other major paleo lakes in the Green Sahara which rose and fell throughout the centuries. Today, there is a string of 18 interconnected lakes in Chad, saltwater, hypersaline, and freshwater, 
all different colors, shining like jewels in the desert that represent the last remnants of one or more of them. So let's talk about the people of the Green Sahara. Who was there during this time? Who was hanging out on the banks of Lake Megachad? I'm dying to know. (laughs) What did they do? And were they having really like cool barbecues and beach parties? Like, tell me everything. Well, assuredly, they were. There is a lot of pseudo-history around the topic of the Green Sahara, so I have tried to pick through that the best I could. Pseudo-historians who believe the Sphinx was 10,000 years old generally equate the people of the Green Sahara with Atlantis. The theory is that there was an advanced civilization here 10,000 years ago, advanced enough to have built the Sphinx and potentially other monuments such as the Sphinx and Valley temples associated with ancient Egypt. Maybe they had spaceships. I don't know. Of course, advanced can be an imprecise and sometimes loaded word. There were no complex societies or large monuments or cities like those of ancient Egypt associated with this time, but there were people here. They were quite advanced in their own way, and they did have some megalithic architecture. And they had a profound influence on the cultures that came after them. Let's start at the beginning. Let's go back over 20,000 years ago to when the Sahara was even larger, hotter, and drier than it is today. A mega desert where nothing and no one could live. There were people living along the large river systems, though, including around the Nile. When the climate shifted, rainfall quadrupled, the Nile grew, becoming a wild river with frequent flash floods that inundated the surrounding countryside, even more and more unpredictably than it does today. Today, with the Sahara a desert, the Nile is still known for its flooding. In the time of the Green Sahara, Its floods were bigger, deeper, wilder, and more unpredictable, by a lot, than they are now, due to all that rainfall. The theory goes that the Nile became dangerous and people fled deeper into the Sahara, which was rapidly turning greener and more hospitable. Its rivers, though, were not for the faint of heart, even if they were a little safer than the Nile. According to archaeologists who've documented the beds of fossil rivers in the Sahara, The desert was crisscrossed by rivers, some of them Nile tributaries. These would have also experienced flash floods. Some researchers referred to them as very wild rivers. It's possible that all the rivers during this time held an element of unpredictability and danger due to the heavy rains. But rivers were also life-giving. So were lakes. And studies show that people lived near them for thousands of years in a land that we now think of as almost completely waterless. Our book, Women of Myth, is out in bookshops and online. It's available worldwide in hardback, ebook, and audio. Women of Myth tells the stories of 50 exceptional heroines, goddesses, and monsters in world mythology. It's beautifully illustrated by Sarah Richard, and it makes the perfect gift for yourself or someone else who happens to love mythology. Look for Women of Myth wherever books are sold. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... 
Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There were two distinctive cultures who lived in the Green Sahara. They were successive, so one came after the other. The first was called, or archaeologists have called, these people, the Kiffian culture. They lived between roughly 8,000 and 6,000 BC in this area. The second was called the Tenerian culture, and they lived from roughly around 7,000 to the 3,000s BC, so there was some overlap, and the uh, dates I've seen for both of these cultures are a bit fuzzy. Much of what we know about the Kiffian and Tenerian cultures come from a place called Gobero. Located deep in the Tenere Desert in Niger, a vast stretch of unbroken sand, a place so dry and inhospitable that it's known as a desert within a desert, it's the oldest known graveyard ever found in the Sahara, dating back to around 8000 BC. The site was discovered in 2008. Here's how it's described in an article in UChicago News. Quote, the largest Stone Age graveyard found in the Sahara, which provides an unparalleled record of life when the region was green, has been discovered in Niger by National Geographic Explorer-in-Residence and University of Chicago professor Paul Sereno, whose team first happened on the site during a dinosaur hunting expedition. The remarkable archaeological site, dating back 10,000 years and called Gobero, after the Toreg name for the area was brimming with skeletons of humans and animals, including large fish and crocodiles. Gobero is hidden away within Niger's forbidding Tenere Desert, known to the Tuareg nomads as a desert within a desert. Uh, continue with this quote, quote, As they explored the site, the team tiptoed among dozens of fossilized human skeletons laid bare on the surface of an ancient dune field by the hot Saharan wind. Jawbones still clenched nearly full sets of teeth. A tiny hand reached up through the sand, its finger bones intact. On the surface lay harpoon points, potsherds, beads, and stone tools. The site was pristine, apparently never visited. Everywhere you turned, there were bones belonging to animals that don't live in the desert, said Sereno. I realized we were in the green Sahara. So, this is just incredible, the scene that this paints, you know? And the site of the graveyard was once the shore of an ancient paleo lake. This was no mega chad. It was a pretty small one, only about 1.8 miles in diameter and 10 feet deep. It's kind of a, basically a pond, right? Mm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not really sure what the boundary between pond and lake is, but it's, a real, it's either a very large pond or a small, small lake. <laughs> This tiny lakelet was home to people and animals for thousands of years, with eight distinct graveyard sites and a wealth of archaeological evidence for habitation. Here's what we know about the Kiffian culture, the earliest and oldest group of people at the site. These were tall people, very tall. Most were over six feet. 
Some were as tall as six foot eight inches and very muscular. Six foot eight is exceptionally tall. It's exceptionally tall by today's standards. So yeah, by this point in time, they're they're obviously getting the nutrition and everything they need for their body to grow to that height. I mean, that's the impressive thing is that these were hunter gatherers and you kind of think of that as like a really subsistence lifestyle where you don't get a lot of the nutrition you need, you know, but like these people were better fed than people today. Yeah, as Jenny just said, it's believed that these people were hunter gatherers, but also that they stayed fairly close to home. The isotopic analysis on their bones has shown that they live their lives mostly by this lakeshore rather than traveling far in search of game up until around the 6000s BC, when they started roving further afield. This was when their environment was growing drier, so perhaps they had to start going further away in search of food. Up until then, their immediate environment probably provided everything they needed. I mean, and that's the impressive thing about this, right? Like, the animals came to them because they had this this lakeshore that they lived near. Which makes sense. They had essentially a watering hole, and that's where all the animals have to go in order to, like, get water and survive. Yeah, but the other factor here is that this wasn't a desert where the watering holes were few and far between. I mean, there were mega chads everywhere, like, (laughs) and wild rivers. Like, this wasn't, like, a dry area. So this was just one watering hole among many. Yeah, proving that there were more animals than people at this point in time. Like, it doesn't, to me, that doesn't seem that revolutionary. It's like, yeah, of course there were more animals than people. Like, There should be more animals than people. Like, it's only really recently in history that we've started, you know, tipping that balance. Like, we don't know things about, like, mortality rates of, like, women or children or things like that. But, of course, there would be a large amount of animals that would come to lakes. And the people just kind of had to be able to defend themselves against said animals or eat them for dinner, I guess, or whatever. Depending on when, because there were oscillations of dry periods and grassland periods and more wetland periods, even when the Sahara was green. So it's a little bit hard to say, but this could have been a a biodiversity hotspot on the scale of Doggerland, let's say. Yeah. And and again, like to me, at this point in time, it doesn't surprise me because, like I said, it's only really recently that humans have been kind of in that colonizing of all of nature you know what I mean like of course there would be more animals than people and of course food would be plentiful actually humans would be food for some of the species that probably came down to that watering hole oh I'm sure it didn't always just work one way with who is eating who here but it's true though like it is one of those things where like when you think about it it's like yeah there would have been a lot more animals than people most of the time throughout most of history So the Kiffian people made distinctive pottery decorated with dots, zigzag patterns, and wavy lines. They made bone fish hooks and a harpoon. So they clearly did a lot of fishing in this, you know, pond lake. The bones of crocodiles, hippos, turtles, and gigantic Nile perch over six feet long have been found here, as well as warthogs, hartebeasts, giraffes, elephants, and pythons. The Kiffians didn't have to go anywhere because everything they needed was right here. Their meals came to them. I mean, it was practically DoorDash. All they had to do was catch them. And they were successful at it. Sometimes. I mean, sometimes they probably weren't. They were definitely built for it, though. Their large, muscular bodies suggest that they lived active, strenuous lives and were very well fed. Like, better fed than me. I am 5'4". The Kiffians tended to bury their dead tightly bound in the fetal position, and the tight bundling of the bodies suggests that they may have been wrapped in animal skins or placed in baskets, although these wrappings or containers haven't survived. What the evidence shows is that the Kiffians lived here 
from roughly 8,000 BC to 6,200 BC, followed by a period of a thousand years where conditions got dry again and nobody lived here. Then, around 5,200 BC, the climate got wetter and in came the Tenerians, a new, distinct culture that was probably unrelated to the Kiffians. These two cultures, at least at this site, were separated by a thousand years. The Tenerians were the next group of people who lived by this lake, around 5,200 to 2,500 BC. These people were much smaller in stature, shorter and less muscular. The food found in their middens was also different. Instead of the giant six-foot Nile perch that the Kiffians reeled in, they ate mainly smaller catfish, tilapia, and soft-shelled turtles. It's believed that perhaps the lake was smaller and more shallow in their time than it was in the Kiffian era, and its animals were smaller. However, other bones in the middens of the Tenerians included hippos, crocodiles, and antelope. So they were hunting hippos and crocodiles, which is still pretty impressive. So clearly they were also proficient hunters. But one of the most significant animals they shared their lives with that you don't find in the Kiffian middens were domestic cattle. Unlike the hunter-gatherer Kiffians, the Tenerians were cattle herders who also fished and hunted. The Tenerians buried their dead in a semi-flexed position, lying on their right or left sides. Distinctively, some of their dead were buried with jewelry, including the body of a young girl who wore a bracelet made from a hippo's tusk. Perhaps the most fascinating burial dates to around 2300 BC, which is a little weird because I just said these people only lived here from 2500 BC. You know what? I don't know. The dates are fuzzy. A wizard did it. A wizard did it. It's a burial of three people, a woman and two children, both between five and eight years old. The three were buried on their sides, facing each other, the children's arms reaching toward the woman, their hands entwined. It's believed that this is a family grave, probably a mother and her children, and that the three died at the same time, likely within 24 hours. Pollen samples taken from beneath the skeletons suggest that they were buried on a bed of flowers. The skeletons in this grave show no signs of trauma or violence, so it's believed they may have died of disease, although it isn't known for sure. I mean, that does sound probably like disease to me. I would say so. I mean, the archaeologists will say there isn't any proof of that, but just absence of other types of death signs. So that's what people think. Yeah, to have the three of them buried together dating from the same time, it feels like it's a It's a fair conclusion to draw, even if it can't be proven. They could have drowned. Or they could have been strangled and killed by their father, who was a family annihilator. They could have been poisoned by the Russians. (laughs) Unlikely they were poisoned by the Russians at this point in time. (laughs) It could have been the frog venom. I don't know. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) We're getting extremely dark here. We're letting our true crime brains run rampant. I will say that strangulation sometimes does show evidence in the skeleton because of broken bones in in the neck. Yeah, particularly amongst the small bodies, you probably would have seen it because their bones are still pretty fragile. So I would say probably not strangulation, but possibly other forms of family annihilation. (laughs) Anyway, we have learned a lot about the people of the Green Sahara by what they left behind at tiny Lake Gobero. However, there is evidence of their presence all over the Sahara. One of the signs they left behind is their stunning and very expressive rock art. In the years since the Cave of the Swimmers was found, a wealth of other rock art has also been found dating to around this time. It shows diverse animals that don't live in the desert. Giraffes, hippos, crocodiles, antelopes, hartebeests, wildebeests, rhinos, elephants, and more. 
The style is usually very naturalistic. Carvings of animals are often life-sized. By the way, speaking of crocodiles, which there are rock art of crocodiles from Kiffian and Tenerian times that are life-sized. And I just want to go on this tiny little diversion about the crocodiles of the Sahara because there are crocodiles that still live in isolated oases in the Sahara Desert. And these oases are now just surrounded by hundreds of miles of sand. And crocodiles are not long-distance walkers. So how, how did these crocodiles get there is a question. Mega Lake. Mega Lake. Mega Chad. <laughs> that's how. Mega River, Mega Nile. <laughs> yes. So they're basically descended in an unbroken line from the crocodiles of the Green Sahara who lived in these mega chads and mega lakes when these waters were a lot more accessible, which I think is just fascinating in and of itself. Like the crocodiles of the Sahara have their own special history. And it just kind of makes me sad that they're so isolated. Like they'll never meet other crocodiles who weren't descended of that same unbroken line because. They can't walk across miles and miles and miles of desert. They'll just be stuck for all their generations. Yeah, those crocodiles will never get out of their tiny town. <laughs> no, they'll always be the big crocodile in a very small pond oasis. Unless they're the small crocodile in the small pond oasis, I guess. Depending on whether or not their oasis is shrinking or not, they might be a small crocodile in a small oasis. Anyway, I'm going to keep going because I could go down a real crocodile rabbit hole but you're not you're not here for that you're here for the green sahara so some of the rock art dates from the kiffian period and it often depicts wild animals that live during a greener time much of it is tenerian and it also depicts domestic cattle so there's one carving dating from roughly 5000 to 7000 bc that depicts domestic cattle with tears rolling down their faces local myth says it was carved by a shepherd who was unable to find water for his cattle. These dates do line up with that arid period we mentioned before, when the people disappeared from the shores of Lake Gobero. Could this myth represent a real event? Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's kind of the big story behind what we've been doing with these natural disasters, is documenting the way mythology has preserved the memories of certain natural disasters, and this could be one of them. Yeah, mythology and art. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And the, the rock art is just so poignant. These weeping cattle from like five to 7,000 BC. It's just incredible. So now we're getting to the drying of the Green Sahara. There were periods even when it was green when there were large thousand-year droughts that really made an, an impact on people and animals. But there was a time when the Sahara turned into a desert, the desert that we know today. And how did that happen and how did it affect the people living there? So for a period of about roughly 11,500 years approximately, the Sahara was a green garden of Eden, a place of wild, unpredictable rivers, rolling grasslands, lush forests, immense and also tiny lakes brimming with life and people. And crocodiles. And crocodiles. Crocodiles that roamed free. <laughs> Weren't stuck in their tiny oasis. Free-range crocodiles. Free-range crocs, just like the free-range 80s kids. <laughs> and 90s. Bring back free-range crocs. <laughs> That's how I feel. Anyway, there were towering, statuesque hunter-gatherers who hunted six-foot perch in tiny ponds, probably wrestled alligators and hippos for fun. You cannot wrestle a hippo for fun. You just, they're too big. Even a six-foot-tall person would not wrestle a hippo for fun. Hippos were, they look like they're gentle, but they're not. I love how Jen thinks someone's going to actually try it 
listening to this episode. (laughs) I don't think someone's going to try it. I just think that the reality is that hippos are one of those things that people don't realize quite how deadly they are. They're they're like super deadly. Not that crocodiles aren't, but like hippos are, they just rampage and that's it. They're very territorial and they they have a hair trigger temper. And you wouldn't think it because they look all round and cute and buttony. Like they got those little button eyes. Yeah, they look like they'd be friendly, like elephants, but they're not. Elephants are also pretty dangerous in the wild. Like, you shouldn't approach elephants. Listen, leave the leave the megafauna alone. It's just one of those things where I'm like, you might wrestle a crocodile, depending on its size, but no one was fucking with a hippo. No one was fucking with one. Look, I'm I'm not I'm not suggesting that anybody wrestle anybody. If you want to get into a wrestling fight, don't pick a hippo. <laughs> I think that's a pretty good rule to live by. Just don't pick a hippo. And maybe not a crocodile. Go for an alligator. They tend to be smaller. But anyway, maybe don't wrestle anything. Unless you're doing sexy wrestling, in which case you probably also wouldn't pick a hippo or a crocodile. I hope. Moving on. God. Anyway. And roaming pastoralists who loved their cattle and probably gave them names. They were artists and hunters and swimmers and cattle herders and craftspeople who lived lives closely entwined with the animals that they hunted and also cared for. The Sahara started to dry out again around roughly 3,500 to 3,000 BC. Again, the dates on that are fuzzy. I've seen different dates. Nobody knows exactly why. One factor is it's believed that the Earth's axis tilted again, sending the African monsoons further south. But some researchers believe that the desertification happened too quickly for this to be the only cause. Some academics believe that the pastoralists accelerated this process. At some point during the time of the Green Sahara, again, the exact dates are disputed, pastoralists had replaced hunters and gatherers as the dominant culture. The theory goes that their goats and cattle overgrazed the land, reducing the plant cover, which reduced the moisture in the air, increasing the albedo and the amount of dust. Some believe ancient nomadic herders may have used fire to cut back unwanted vegetation, which would have accelerated this process even further. Not everyone agrees with this, however. There's competing scholarship that states that the pastoralists actually forestalled the change from green to desert by as much as 500 years. It's kind of iffy here because I've seen a lot of research when talking about, you know, past cultures and times and climate change in the ancient world where there seems to be an instinct to blame ancient cultures for these things, which may or may not be the case. Today, I think climate change is human-caused. That's true. Yeah, you yeah, know, that, that's not for debate. I'm just trying to figure out, like, if the scale of which they were doing this would have been on a level uh, big enough to, to have that impact. Because we, we can see it now, but, like, back then, I, I don't know. Right, given, like, probably that the population would have been a much smaller. I don't know. I don't know what the population was in the Green Sahara at this time. I don't know what the volcanoes were doing or the icebergs or anything. Yeah, exactly. There were a lot of other factors that probably had an impact. And there's scholarship that suggests that the change from Green Sahara to Desert Sahara was happening longer than some assume. The transition from hunter-gatherer societies to pastoralist societies could be a clue. It's possible that the environment was growing slowly drier and less hospitable even as the Sahara was still green, possibly caused by the axial shift. And that people transitioned from hunter-gatherer to nomadic herding cultures because they had to, because they could no longer just live by these lakeshores and expect all their food to just come to them. Things got harder, they got a little bit drier, Lake Gobero was smaller, and they had to make 
changes in their social structure to survive. Exactly. And that also makes a lot of sense to me. Like, I always think the answer is like, it was all of the above. (laughs) D, all of the above. (laughs) So what caused the transition from green to desert Sahara around 3500 BC is still fiercely debated. But the change did happen. And while the change may have been gradual at first, there's some evidence to suggest that the final change from grassland to desert, may have taken just a century or two. This would have been an ecological disaster. The people of the Green Sahara fled their ancestral pasturelands. Some went south, others north. Some fled to an older refuge, one they'd clung to the last time the Sahara had turned dry, the banks of the Great Nile. During the time of the Green Sahara, the Nile turned wild and dangerous, with great seasonal and flash floods that frequently inundated its banks, sweeping away everything in its path. Archaeology shows that during the time of the Green Sahara, people fled the banks of this powerful, volatile river. But now, as the Sahara turned desert, they returned to the Nile, the river that was their refuge during the last time the Sahara was a desert. And with them, they carried the first seeds of the ancient Egyptian culture. There is some evidence that from the earliest times, the ancient Egyptians carried an even more ancient memory of the Green Sahara. That memory was recorded by the ancient Greeks and the Romans. In the 440s BC, Herodotus said, quote, Egyptians boasted that their ancestors in the lands of the West were the oldest men on earth. And Diodorus Siculus, writing in the 1st century BC, said, quote, the Egyptians themselves claimed that their ancestors were strangers who in very remote times settled on the bank of the Nile, bringing with them the civilization of their mother country, the art of writing and a polished language. They had come from the direction of the setting sun and that they were the most ancient of men. And that's quite vague because all it really says is that the people who preceded the ancient Egyptians came from the west, which would be, if you're on the Nile, basically the direction of where the Sahara is. That's the kind of description I would give. <laughs> Jenny would be like, but where exactly? And I'd be like, the west. And she'd be like, okay, but I need more than that. And I'd be like, I don't know, the west. Like, take a take a dart and just put it in the <laughs> somewhere in the west in the desert and that's it. <laughs> but that's fair. I mean, the desert is a big place. <laughs> The Asian Egyptians themselves had a belief that they were descended from the people of Punt. I mean, this does kind of tie into Punt a little bit, which is really interesting, which was at various times to the south, southeast, southwest, northeast, west, and east of the Nile. And that's kind of like the Sahara also was in all those directions. I mean, look, you just go right outside, you pass the Barnes and Noble, you take a left at the Starbucks, and then it's just another 40 miles through the desert. And then you drag your ships 80 miles through the desert and then something, something, dot, dot, dot. Somehow you're in Punt. I mean, I give great pirate directions. (laughs) First star on the right, straight ahead till morning. So the Egyptians described the land of Punt as the place they went to get all the most luxurious goods, all the stuff, all the good stuff for very favorable and possibly exploitative prices. They saw it as sort of a mythic ancestral homeland where their own culture had come from. But it's not clear that the ancient Egyptians saw Tan Niger or Punt as a land of great monuments and cities like their own. Like, that's just an assumption that we make, I feel, as modern historians. Yeah, in fact, the pharaoh Hatshepsut displayed on the walls of her tomb a mural of an expedition to Punt. The Puntite people's houses were depicted as simple grass huts on stilts to protect from flooding, 
indicating that they perhaps lived near a river that flooded, which could have been the Nile, but also any other river from the Green Sahara because they were all feisty. Also, it could have been a lake that flooded. Maybe. Who knows? The evidence is a bit circumstantial and vague, to say the least. However, there are a few elements of ancient Egyptian culture that can be traced directly back to the Green Sahara. One of those is mummification. And just to give a little bit of a disclaimer, it isn't necessarily 100% agreed upon that all of this stuff can be absolutely traced directly back, but it has corollaries. And we're going with the you can trace it directly back because to us, the cumulative evidence looks pretty clear, at least to me. Anyway, the ancient Egyptians had a really intricate method of mummifying their dead. It was important to their religion that the body stay preserved. And they got so good at it that even today, you can see ancient Egyptian mummies from 3,000 years ago that are almost flawlessly preserved and look almost as they did in life, complete with skin, hair, fingernails, the works. Yeah, I went a bit into detail on the mummification process because I just think it's neat. No, Jenny went into detail on something gory. I would never have guessed it, y'all. Anyway. The mummification process took 70 days and was undertaken by a team of specialist embalmers and priests. The first thing they did, amidst prayers and rituals for the dead done at precise steps in the process, was to remove all internal organs because those would hasten the decaying process. The dead person's liver, lungs, and intestines were placed in canopic jars. The brain was removed using a hooked instrument inserted through the nose. The heart, believed to be the center of a person's self, was left in place. Then, the body was dried. It would be covered over with natron, which was a naturally occurring mineral that's kind of like a mix of salt and baking soda, usually found in riverbeds. Natron is extremely dehydrating. The body would be covered in it, and more would be placed in packets inside the body cavity. It took about 35 to 40 days to dry a body out this way, but once it was done, you'd have a mummy. The body would be washed and stuffed with linen and other packing to fill it out a bit first and give it more of a lifelike appearance. It would also get fall size that could be made of shells, precious stones, or even painted onions. I feel like a painted onion isn't a great choice. Yeah, I I think that that was like the cheap option for if you weren't like a wealthy pharaoh. (laughs) Yeah. Now, all there was left to do was to wrap the mummy in linen. Hundreds of yards of linen. This was a multi-stage process that involved coating the body and the linen wrapping with multiple layers of resin and placing magical amulets at strategic places on the body for protection in the afterlife. The mummy would also have a final mask to adorn its face before being wrapped in the final layer of linens and placed in, depending on the family's wealth and status, sometimes several layers of nesting coffins and sarcophagi, and then an elaborate tomb. So that's the classical process of mummification in ancient Egypt in a nutshell. And this process sometimes varied depending on the time period and how wealthy the dead person was. But that is more or less the gist. Jenny, I'm just going to tell you this right now. We're getting onionized. That's the budget of Ancient History Fangirl. If you want to help us get, I don't know, shell eyes, contribute to our Patreon. The conventional wisdom is that the origin of this process came from seeing how the dead mummified naturally when being laid to rest in the sand. Sometime before the 2600s BC, which is around when people in the Old Kingdom started mummifying their dead. But one discovery suggests that the practice of mummification is much older than the ancient Egyptian culture itself, and that it goes back to the Green Sahara. This discovery was made at a place called Wan Mahujej, at an isolated rock shelter in modern-day southwestern Libya. 
The rock shelter is found at the bank of a wadi, which is a dry valley or ravine or riverbed that stays dry except during the rainy season when it's flooded and may have a river in it. And a crocodile. The wadi is found in the Tadrart Akakas, a mountain range known for its green Sahara rock art. The entire location is about 1,500 miles west of the Nile, deep in the Sahara Desert. A lot of interesting finds have been made in this rock shelter, which was occupied more or less continuously from the 5,000s to about 2,700 BC. Stylized cave art of humans with large round heads have been found here, dating from around the 3,000s BC, very different from the more naturalistic images of animals that come from this time. Some of the figures were depicted in boats, including one in an upside-down boat, a capsized ship, if you will. Other images of pastoral scenes are older, suggesting that these were people of the Tenerian culture. Animal bones found at the site include sheep, goat, domestic cattle, wild cat and donkeys, warthogs, gazelles, baboons, turtles, and hares. The domestic cattle bones are some of the oldest at the site, from around 6,000 BC and provide some of the oldest evidence of cattle herding in the Green Sahara. Other finds include pottery, microlithic tools, ancient hearths, and over 30 types of plant seeds. But perhaps the most important discovery wasn't these things, as interesting as they are. The most important and headline-grabbing find here was the mummified body of a young boy. Archaeologists call him the Tashwinat mummy. So the Tashwinat mummy was a black child, about two and a half years old, He was found under the lowest layer of ancient coals at the site, so it would appear that the inhabitants dug him a grave below the lowest layer of habitation. He lay just under a layer of vegetable fibers, perhaps a woven mat laid over him in death. The boy was buried in a fetal position, inside a sack made of antelope skin, and he had been mummified following some of the ancient Egyptian practices. The body was exceptionally well-preserved. His organs had been removed via incisions in his thorax and abdomen and replaced with wild herbs believed to have a preservative effect. He was found wearing a necklace of ostrich eggshells. This mummy dates to around 3600 BC, predating the oldest ancient Egyptian mummies by a thousand years or more. And what we know is that just 500 years after the death of this boy, the desertification got so bad that people started fleeing the Sahara and settling around the Nile and other waterways again. It's quite possible they brought these traditions with them. Yeah, and it's especially interesting to note that this child was buried in a tight fetal position inside a sack, which is actually more like the Kiffian culture than the Tenerians. Did this method of burial harken back to a lost ancient tradition among the Kiffians that was even older? I mean, it's hard to say, as no mummified remains have been found from that time, but it is an intriguing question. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes. 
a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So another thing that connects the ancient Egyptians to the people of the Green Sahara, possibly, are the cattle cults. The first inhabitants of the Green Sahara were hunters and gatherers. But by around 6000 BC, possibly due to the changing environmental pressures, cattle herders, or Tenerians, came to dominate the region. There's a complicated history associated with the cattle they herded. Today, the term Sangha cattle is used as a kind of catch-all term for the types of indigenous domestic cattle herded by sub-Saharan African pastoralists. There are many varieties, and their origin is still hotly debated. But it's believed that they might have originated from the wild aurochs bred with zebu cattle from the ancient Near East. At any rate, if you Google Sangha cattle, what you'll see is a type of cow with very impressive upcurved horns. An animal that looks both a bit like an aurochs, which are now extinct, and like the domesticated cattle depicted in the Green Sahara rock art. These cattle just have these incredible large horns that curve upwards, and they're really, they're really just mesmerizing, I think. I think a lot of times domesticated cows, we think of them as one way, and if they do have horns, they're quite tiny horns. These are huge horns, like gazelle or like deer horns. They're wild. They look like that in the rock art, which is really incredible. So anyway, pastoral communities live in Africa today, including in and around the Sahara, and they, many of them, have cattle like this with these big horns that, you know, look a lot like the type of cattle that you see in the rock art. And I can't obviously speak for all the traditions of all the pastoralists in this area. This is a very diverse community, and I can't really speak to what people do in the present day in general. But I am going to say that traditionally, very generally speaking, subsistence pastoralists just kind of in general in Africa, from what I've read, have tended to keep their cattle alive and live off their dairy products rather than slaughtering them for meat. I'm not saying they never slaughter them for meat. I mean, sometimes they do, but they don't do that all the time. Like, usually what they do is live off the dairy products, from what I understand. So there is evidence that this practice goes all the way back to the Green Sahara. Archaeological evidence going back 5,000 years shows that the Tenerian pastoralists milked their cows, drank the milk, and made butter, yogurt, and even cheese. The people of the Green Sahara were dairy farmers. But the cows were probably more to these people than just walking froyo dispensers. For many pastoralists even today, the cattle are more than a livelihood. They develop close relationships with their cattle. They get to know each animal's individual personalities. The cattle become part of the family. There's reason to think that that bond goes all the way back to the Green Sahara, as demonstrated by the weeping cattle in ancient rock art. So, pastoralists in ancient times were wont to keep their cattle alive, living off the dairy products they created and creating strong bonds with their animals. But sometime around the 3000s BC, right about the time the Sahara was desertifying, something started to change. Actually, the date might go back to the 5000s BC. It's a little fuzzy. There have been all kinds of dates thrown around that I have seen. Throughout the Sahara, there are massive stone monuments that date to the time when the Green Sahara was changing. 
They take different forms, but one of the most common is tumuli, big piles of rock mixed with the cremated bones of cattle, precious cattle who have been ritually slaughtered. I mean, that is always a sign of things going badly. Right. It was expensive to slaughter a cow. I'm not saying that people didn't do it, you know, at special occasions, but it seemed to increase during the time that the Sahara was desertifying, is the theory. Yeah. I mean, it's also expensive to keep a, keep a cow alive if you don't have the resources to keep them alive. That's another factor, yeah. So according to one theory, this was in response to stress put on pastoral communities when the environment desertified. According to a research article entitled, quote, Building Monuments, Creating Identity, Cattle Cults as a Social Response to Rapid Environmental Changes in the Holocene Sahara by Savino di Lernia. And just for ease of understanding, we've changed BP to BC here just to keep it consistent with how we do our podcast. Yeah, BP means before present, and I've run into a lot of confusion finding dates that are expressed as BP and BC and kilo-years and stuff when researching these ancient uh, events. So hopefully I have tried to make everything in BC just so that people don't get super confused. I have been getting super confused with this. Yeah. So, quote, abrupt climate changes in marginal areas such as the Central Sahara in the early and middle Holocene were among the major environmental constraints on prehistoric human groups. Social responses to these events were different, with different paths and outcomes. The spread of a cattle cult, animals buried in megalithic stone structures, in the Sahara at the end of the 5th millennium BC, circa 4,400 to 3,000 BC, is seen as a collective ritual that emerged within Saharan pastoral societies to face uncertain climate and socially relate to superhuman entities. The type of right, slaughtering of precious domestic livestock, reveals a shared identity in coping with catastrophic episodes, i.e. abrupt droughts. The spread of this cult over large parts of the present-day Sahara is interpreted as the result of rapid movements of nomadic groups in search of pasture and water. Dramatic climate deterioration at 3000 BC is one of the causes of a further major social shift in the rituals archaeologically detected by stone structures. These monuments become human burials, underlying a shift from social to individual identity, as mirrored in the funerary traditions of later pastoral groups. Yeah, so do you want to break this down for a minute? Yeah. So basically uh, what they're saying, as far as I can tell, is that there are these megalithic stone structures in the desert that show that people were, you know, slaughtering cattle ritualistically in the Sahara around the same time that the Sahara was desertifying, becoming a desert. And this was widespread. And some theories I've seen have suggested that people in the Green Sahara really did share a culture and a cultural beliefs and religious beliefs, and that this is evidence of that. In this paragraph, he seems to be saying it's widespread because people were just traveling wide distances in search of food and water for their cattle, and it might have been a little of column A, a little of column B. Basically, people were doing this in response to environmental stress, and that also eventually the burial rituals first given to cattle because cattle were so special to these people were later given to humans. So you start seeing human burials this way later on in this period. And this is my extrapolation. I've also seen it written elsewhere. That may be where the very elaborate 
funerary traditions of the ancient Egyptians ultimately came from. So that's one theory. They loved people enough to bury them the way they'd bury cows. I love it. Yeah, kind of, actually. But the cattle tradition was so ancient to ancient Egypt that it was kind of a little bit forgotten, but also preserved in cattle cult rites and religions, which we're going to get to as well. But first, there's more to talk about in terms of cattle cults in the ancient Sahara, because there's a lot here to talk about. So anyway... There are a number of examples of megalithic structures in the Green Sahara that give evidence of cattle cults. Perhaps one of the most dramatic is the monument on the Mesic Plateau in Libya, a huge sandstone escarpment on which can be found extensive rock art, some of which depict cattle being sacrificed, along with flowers, other offerings, and stone maces, which were possibly the weapons used to do the slaughtering. The activity here seems to date from around the 5000s to the 3000s BC. Bones were found here too. In a number of stone tumuli, again, large piles of stone, and also flat piles of stone that are just kind of flat on the ground, as many as 10 feet wide, cattle bones were buried, burned and disarticulated, and showing signs of having been slaughtered in a large ritual feast or something like that. These monuments are kind of complex and chaotic, with broken and disarticulated cattle bones, standing stones, piles of stone tumuli, broken pottery and charcoal, some of it buried, some of it found on the desert surface, showing potentially a large amount of complex ceremonial activity. In the later years of the monument's use, humans were also buried here. In the article by Delernia, he points out that these monuments are widespread in the Sahara. Some of them as many as 2,000 miles apart, and all within a relatively narrow slice of time, which we've seen from around the 5,000s to the 3,000s BC. He suggests that the cattle cult spread fast across the Sahara, among scattered small groups of nomadic pastoralists, and corresponded with deteriorating environmental conditions. Basically, people coped with sudden droughts and desertification by sacrificing their precious cattle in a last-ditch attempt to appeal to the gods. That would not surprise me in any way, shape, or form. So, how does this line up with ancient Egypt? Well, cattle worship was a big deal in the ancient Egyptian religion. The ancient Egyptians had a number of cattle cults themselves. That's kind of weird because the ancient Egyptian economy was not that cow-dependent. Their most important herd animals were sheep, pigs, and goats. They did have some cattle, but they weren't super common. But cows were all over their religion, to the point where you'd think the cattle played a much bigger role in their society than they actually did. So here are some prominent cattle-based religions and things that existed in ancient Egypt that we've come across, that I've come across. And this is just a very small sampling. So the Bukis bull. We talked about this before, Jen. Do you remember the Bukis bull? The Bukis bull specifically comes from the Cleopatra episodes because she traveled up the Nile, basically down the Nile, but it was up because the Nile runs to south to north. She traveled up the Nile to participate in this festival that surrounded this Bukis bull. It was this local cult that was really important to the specifically to the ancient Egyptians, not to the Greek colonizers, to showcase her credentials as a populist, basically. Which makes a lot more sense, right, when you think about it, because like the colonizers are not that interested in the cattle cult, but obviously the people who've been worshipping them since, you know, the time of the Green Sahara are all about it. Go Cleopatra! So the Bucchus bull involved a, a sacred bull dedicated to a war god named Montu. 
the Buckus bull had to be white with a black face. And when it, and sometimes its mother, depending on the time period, died, both were mummified according to ancient Egyptian practices and buried in a special sacred cemetery. This cult has its roots from what I understand around the 400s BC, but it was descended on four older bull cults that were combined. So we're not sure exactly how far back the roots of this religion go. The war god Montu, to whom the bull was dedicated, had a name that translated to nomad. There's another one called uh, the Apis Bull. The Apis Bull was also a sacred bull worshipped in Memphis, believed to be the son of Hathor, whose role at some points was to be sacrificed and then reborn. He served as a sort of intermediary between humans and the uh, powerful and important Egyptian deities like Osiris. The Apis Bull was a black calf who was seen as a sort of oracle. His actions were said to predict the future. In earlier times, when the Apis Bull died, it was buried in a separate tomb with a special temple built over it. But from the time of Ramses II, the Apis Bulls were buried in a maze of underground catacombs. So there's a whole maze of underground catacombs with just bulls in it. Cattlecombs. Cattlecombs, exactly. Uh-huh. Perhaps the most important, however, was the cult of Hathor. Hathor was one of the most important goddesses in the Egyptian pantheon, a sky deity associated with Horus, the sky god, as well as Ra, the sun god. She was both their mother and at times their lover because Egyptian mythology is also wild. Uh, She was often represented as a cow or a woman with cow's horns and a sun disc between them. Hathor is a very complex goddess. Her realms include fate, kingship, fertility, and childbirth, maternal and sexual love, joy, music and dance, and the ushering of souls into the afterlife. And she had complex interwoven relationships with many other deities. In addition to her many other roles, she was seen as a protector in desert regions, especially at night. Ooh, I get you. I get where you're going. In the afterlife, Hathor was said to be the first to welcome the dead and preside over a verdant garden, perhaps a green Sahara, representative of a vanished world. I've seen Hathor referred to as one of the oldest goddesses in the Egyptian pantheon, which is a little confusing to me because Hathor didn't really appear in her most recognizable form until around the Old Kingdom's fourth dynasty, starting in the late 2600s BC. But cow goddess iconography is much older. Images of cows and women with upraised arms, reminiscent of cow's horns, images of cows with stars amidst their horns, reminiscent of Hathor's role as a sky goddess and a night guardian, images of women with horns, all of this. This iconography goes all the way back to the beginning of ancient Egypt. It appears on the Narmer palette from around the 3100s BC, with some of the earliest ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs ever, and that's the one with the very first pharaoh, Narmer, whacking a guy on the head. It's very iconic. I know I've talked about it before on the podcast. And you know what I just learned, by the way? The Narmer palette, it's kind of this, like, flat stone, and it was an eyeshadow palette. Fuck yeah, it was. (laughs) I did not know that, and I was absolutely blown away. I was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) That's so cool. They had some epic smoky eyes. Anyway, some researchers believe that there were many different cow goddesses, worshipped all up and down the Nile, religions that they brought with them from the Green Sahara, and that as those communities were colonized and incorporated into the Old Kingdom, those goddesses were all kind of hoovered up into the identity of Hathor, which is why she represents so many things. She took on the identities of many different cow goddesses as she evolved. 
it's interesting to note, like, just in terms of the dates here, Juan Mahujaj, the, the Tashwinat mummy, he dates from, I think, like, 3500 BC, and the earliest iconography of ancient Egypt, the first pharaoh, dates from 3100 BC. Like, there isn't that much of a gap of time. It is really possible that, that there's a lot of cultural continuity here. Absolutely. Another thing that you can trace back that both the ancient the people of the ancient Green Sahara had and the people of ancient Egypt had were uh, megalithic structures and architecture. Let's look at that a little more closely. So, I mean, ancient Egypt is known for some of the most spectacular examples of megalithic architecture in the world, including but not limited to the pyramids and that sphinx that we've talked about so many times. And this actually goes all the way back to the time of the Green Sahara and those cattle cult monuments. Which isn't to say that people in the Green Sahara built the pyramids or the Sphinx, just that there was a tradition of, of megalithic construction. Some of the monuments are fairly simple tumuli, just piles of rock, but others are more complex. One example of this is Nabta Playa, and I've been wanting to do something on Nabta Playa for a while, and this is just where it fits. It's really fascinating. So this is an archaeological site in the Nubian Desert. People may have lived here as far back as the 9000s BC, first hunter-gatherers and then pastoralists. By the 6000s BC, there were large organized settlements here, with small huts built in long, straight rows and deep wells that held water all year round. The small huts in long, straight rows just kind of floors me a little bit. They had urban planning of some kind? That's interesting. I wonder what it was planned around. Why the long, straight rows? I can't say. Yeah, like what were they planning it around? Was it some kind of like, particularly because they had wells that had water all year round, like what were they lining it up to and why? Was there a road there? I, I really can't say. Was it on the side of a riverbank or was this where it was easier to get water from? Or I'm just fascinated. Also the drainage. Yeah, I don't I don't know um, the answer to that. I don't know what has been found in terms of drainage. Did they have toilets? I haven't found any evidence that they did or didn't. Yeah, they might not know, you know, because of because of the desertification of the area. Yeah, anyway, so bones of goats and sheep have been found here that were possibly imported from Western Asia, which is really interesting. Like some of their livestock were imports from very far away. Like they had extensive trade contacts. Some of the oldest pottery in Africa has been found here as well. And it would seem there was a major societal change at Nabta Playa. At some point in the centuries before 5500 BC, people left the area. This was around the time of that drought that we talked about, that we keep bringing up. <laughs> the weeping cow drought, you guys. My weeping baby cows. I know, my heart. <laughs> People left Nabta Playa and then returned around 5,500 BC. It's at this time that they built one of the oldest stone circles in the world. This is about circa 4,800 BC, with astronomical alignments marking the summer solstice, along with over 30 complex structures and stone monuments, with both above-ground and underground features. That is so cool. Yeah, Nabta Playa is a really complex site, and it's it was a bit hard for me to like pick through exactly what was happening here. 
the stone circle found at Nabta Playa, and it, it's one of, like, there are also, like, just long stone alignments, standing stones in long lines that are arranged. I'm not exactly sure if they're arranged according to, like, astronomical events or things like that, but there are astronomical alignments here, too. It's really interesting. Obviously, you know, the oldest stone circles that I believe we know about are in Gobekli Tepe, which we've already covered. But it's still, this is still a lot older than Stonehenge. You know, Africa has older stone circles than the UK does. And that's not very widely known that I'm aware of. So inside these stone circles, some of these are burial chambers for young cows, sacrificed and buried under stone tumuli. The people of the Nabta Playa sometimes buried whole skeletons in clay-lined chambers roofed with megalithic stones. These cow burials started around 5,400 to 5,300 BC and continued until the 3000s BC. There were also over 30 complex megalithic structures that involved stone circles framing deeply buried, naturally occurring mushroom-shaped table rocks underground. These are features in the bedrock that were formed by erosion and then buried in sediment millions of years ago. No word on how the people knew they were there. Before we get to the table rocks, I want to unpack the cow burials for a minute. So in Nabta Playa, some of the monuments found were whole cow skeletons buried in clay-lined chambers roofed with megalithic stones, which could have been um, stone circles or tumuli. That really reminds me of the Apis Bull, right? Where the Apis Bull would be sacrificed and buried in its own underground tomb topped by a temple. I don't know if these are, you know, an exact corollary, but they seem really similar just thousands of years earlier. Like, does the Abbas Bull tradition go back that far? I don't know. But it's fascinating to think about. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to speculate. But again, the research doesn't yet back up that theory. But we like our fan fiction. That's why we're here. We're fangirls. I don't know that the research doesn't back up that theory. You know, I just think it's not all universally agreed upon. Yeah. So did you get the thing about the table rocks? I just assumed they were like flat slabs of table rocks that they were putting on top of them. You know how the Sphinx is um, part of the ground rock, like it's part of the bedrock? Yeah. So these are features that are part of the bedrock, like mushroom-shaped rock formations that are part of the bedrock. So they carved into the bedrock, just like the Sphinx was carved into the bedrock. I don't believe that the people carved them into the bedrock. I think they were carved by erosion like millions of years ago. They're naturally forming formations, rock formations, that are buried under like 10 feet of ancient sediment, like not even 10 feet of sand, but ancient sediment that occurred before the sand in the Green Sahara. So what seems to have happened is that the people of the Nabta Playa somehow knew where these things were, dug down there, and sometimes they would put other things down there, kind of on top of these table rocks, like there have been cow sculptures found like 10 feet underground, and then filled that in and built a megalithic structure on top, like a tumulus or a a stone circle or something like that. It's very mysterious, and my question is, how did they know that there were these rock formations under the ground like that? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if there is some evidence at the top of the ground that they knew. If they dug down, they'd find something. How we know sometimes in different places you can find different gems and stuff. Like, I I don't know the answer. It's a great question. These rock formations had some kind of sacred meaning. I'm not sure. Anyway, so some archaeologists believe that all this building activity at Nabta Playa indicated that these people were able to organize their societies to do large, complex works projects 
that they had complex religious beliefs, and that their societies were more complex than other contemporary groups in the Green Sahara. But also, like, they're not necessarily outside of other ordinary pastoral cultures in the Green Sahara. It would also seem that this location was a, maybe a festival or religious gathering point for people all over the Sahara, suggesting that the people of the Green Sahara, many of them, if not all of them, more or less shared a similar culture and religion. So to recap, this area, Nabta Playa, was a regional ceremonial center starting around, let's say, 6100 to 5600 BC, with people gathering from all over the Green Sahara to share in various communal rituals and celebrations that involved mass cattle slaughter. There were people living here around then, too. Starting around 5500 BC, a new group came in with significantly more organized structure, and they started burying their cattle in underground clay-lined chambers topped by rough tumuli and... In 4800 BC, the stone circle was constructed, aligned with the summer solstice and the start of the rainy season. This was followed by increasingly more complex megalithic structures and eventually human burials. More recent research suggests more complex astronomical alignments to stars that were particularly bright in the night sky, some of which are repeated in ancient Egyptian architecture. Some archaeologists suggest that the site evolved to be an ancient necropolis, the ancient Egyptians were also known for their necropoli, Giza, Saqqara, Abusir, Thebes, and many others. Some researchers believe that the complex society that arose at Nabta Playa, with its structured society, religious beliefs, megalithic architecture, necropolis, and cattle worship, may have formed an intermediary culture between the ancient people of the Green Sahara and the culture of classical ancient Egypt. From an article titled Late Neolithic Megalithic Structures at Nabta Playa, Sahara, and Southwestern Egypt by Fred Wendorf from the Southwestern Methodist University, quote, The discoveries at Nabta Playa suggest the possibility of a previously unrecognized relationship between Neolithic people living along the Nile and pastoralists in the ancient Sahara, which may have contributed to the rise of social complexity in ancient Egypt. This complexity, as expressed by different levels of authority within the society, forms the basis for the structure of both the Neolithic society at Nabta and the Old Kingdom of Egypt. It was this authority at Nabta which made possible the planned arrangement of their villages, the excavation of large deep wells, and the construction of complex stone structures made of large shaped and unshaped stones. There are other Nabta features which are shared by the two areas, but which appear suddenly and without evident local antecedents in the late pre-dynastic and early Old Kingdom in the Nile Valley. These include the role of cattle to express differences of wealth, power, and authority, the emphasis on cattle in religious beliefs, and the use of astronomical knowledge and devices to predict solar events. Many of these features have a prior and long history of development at Nabta. So this just begs us to ask the question, and I just want to talk about this. Was Nabta Playa the land of Punt? So show your evidence if you think that Nabta Playa was the land of Punt. I want to see your work. Okay, so Nabta Playa is located about 700 miles south of the Pyramids of Giza, let's say about 60 miles west of the Nile in the Nubian Desert. The location isn't wrong. It's to the west, and it's also down the Nile to the south, which according to some accounts in ancient Egypt, that's how you get there. There are huts, the huts in the line, evidence of maybe a more structured society. I'm not sure what the huts looked like, but they kind of seem to me a little bit reminiscent of what appeared on Hatshepsut's tomb. The societal complexity and the 
building of ancient megaliths with astronomical alignments. Like that's kind of sacred knowledge, right? And this is one of the things that the Egyptians talk about when they talk about where their ancestors came from and the sacred knowledge and learning that they brought with them, right? I mean, I'm not 100% convinced, but I think you put forward a good case. Yeah, you can also trace, you know, the way that they buried their cattle to the Apis bull cults. Like they were burying their cattle in these underground chambers with temples on top, essentially. I don't know. I mean, I'm not necessarily 100% convinced either, but there's an argument to be made. Absolutely. There's a debate to be made. There's a debate to be had. Yeah. So some of the ancient cattle cult burial sites eventually transitioned to being used for human burials, roughly around the 3000s BC. And around 3100 BC is when we see the first evidence of the Old Kingdom. Ancient Egypt had a very complex culture surrounding death spectacular megalithic tombs and pyramids with archaeoastronomical alignments, elaborate mummification practices, and a vast pantheon of gods, some of the oldest of which were cattle deities that welcomed the newly dead to the underworld. Some historians dispute that all of these traditions from ancient Egypt arose directly from the Sahara in an unbroken line, But it's quite possible and very intriguing to think that much of ancient Egyptian mortuary and religious tradition arose from the religious beliefs of ancient nomadic cattle herders living on the Green Sahara and their tradition of mortuary ritual, not for people, but for precious, sacrificial cattle that arose as a coping mechanism to deal with the uncertainty of climactic change and sudden drought. I really like that fanfiction. Yeah, I mean, it's informed fanfiction, right? Absolutely. People are doing serious scholarship around this. Like, I don't necessarily think it's just fanfiction either. Yeah. The Sphinx was not built by the people of the Green Sahara. That's pretty clear. But they did worship and build complex megalithic monuments around heavily eroded bedrock outcrops mysteriously buried under ancient sediment. And perhaps it's the case that the entirety of ancient Egyptian religious belief is its own monument to that far more ancient time when the Sahara was green. Maybe. I like to think so. So that's it for this week. Join us next week for whatever we're talking about next. In the meantime, come and hang out with us on social. Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and now Threads. And at Ancient His Fan on Twitter, if Twitter's still a thing. Who knows? Who knows? We don't know. We have a lot of social platforms. Maybe we should reduce that number down, but that's where we are for now. So we are. Uh, we tend to be most active on Instagram. Yeah, and we're also pretty active on our Patreon. So you should check out our Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. This is how we keep the podcast going. It's how we keep the lights on. We would not be able to do this podcast without the support of our patrons. And we've got some really fun stuff up right now, don't we, Jenny? Yeah, I've been doing... um. Well, we've both been doing a a homegrown history series where we talk about ancient, fascinating history of our own hometowns and home areas. And we have allowed Julius Caesar to come off his leash a little bit to review some modern movies. Julius Caesar watched Cocaine Bear and he had thoughts. We're going to ask Cullen to come and visit us. He watched the Batman with Robert Pattinson, and we think he's going to watch the Barbie movie with us. I have a feeling he's going to have real thoughts about the Barbie movie, and I just cannot wait to hear what those are. <laughs> and in addition, Jenny and I had thoughts about the Dial of Destiny, the new Indiana Jones movie. So we have a lot of fun stuff on Patreon. For as little as $3, you get extra episodes, you get ad-free episodes, and you get to listen to us. 
You get videos. You get videos and we'll be in your ears more often. No waiting. And we usually thank our pa- our new patrons in our episodes, but we have no new patrons to thank today. So we are hoping maybe someone will sign up after they hear this. Who knows? We appreciate everyone's support. Thank you so much. And we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.